Our text words this evening you can find in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. With God's help this evening, we want to consider with you the theme, God establishing the covenant of works with Adam. God establishing the covenant of works with Adam. First, we will see the broad sweeping backdrop of this covenant of works. Second, the essential parts of the covenant of works. And third, the practical importance of the covenant of works. God establishing the covenant of works with Adam. Its broad sweeping backdrop, its essential parts, its practical importance. You recall, I trust, dear congregation, that we have been following in several sermons the first book of the Bible. We've looked at our glorious creation recently as God's masterpiece. And in our last message in this series, we looked at God's world of provision for man. We took a cursory look at Genesis 2. and We saw that God supplied a world of physical provision, of spiritual provision, moral provision, aesthetic provision provision, and social provision. We saw that God left nothing lacking in our creation and in the world into which he put the man, the man Adam, and we in him. But there is one theme, the theme of our text tonight, that I did not touch on last time as I wanted to save it for a separate message, a theme often misunderstood, sometimes altogether denied, and yet so fundamental in the scriptures to understanding the gospel, and that is the covenant of works. In Genesis 2, God built into his concept of covenant the covenant of works and the covenant of marriage. Into this marvelous world of provision, God established a covenant of works with Adam, and then established a covenant of marriage, as we shall see in a future occasion, between Adam and Eve. Now, as we approach this great theme of covenant in Genesis 2, we need to see three important things by way of a backdrop. Shall we appreciate the covenant of works properly? The first is that the entire Bible is a covenant-centered book. The Bible, you know, consists of the Old Testament, or you could translate it Old Covenant, and the New Testament, or the New Covenant. 
The word covenant occurs more than 300 times in the scripture. The term covenant comes from a Latin word, which means a coming together. It presupposes two or more parties who come together to make an agreement. An agreement that involves promises, that involves stipulations, that involves privileges, and that involves responsibilities. So a covenant is an agreement between two or more parties binding them mutually to certain undertakings on each other's behalf. A covenant is a serious thing. It is an inviolable bond. It is a sworn commitment. Now, there can be covenants between people. For example, in the Bible, we read of a covenant between David and Jonathan, between Israel and Gibeon. Sometimes these covenants were called bilateral covenants because they were of two parties who were equal, equal in parity. And two equal people entered into a covenant with equal conditions and were of equal social standing. But in the case of Israel and Gibeon, we have what is called a unilateral covenant, a one-sided covenant, a superior party imposing a covenant on an inferior party. We think of the ancient treaties often made in Israel and other nations between a suzerain who was a sovereign in an area, a ruler, and his vassals. Suzerains often made unilateral covenants. They would impose a covenant upon their vassals. Well, that's what Israel did. It imposed a covenant upon Gibeon. Now, most often, there, the Bible speaks of a covenant made between God and man. God is a covenant God. It pleases him to deal, as we learned since childhood from Reverend Hellenbrook, with man in a covenantal way. In our relationship to God, a covenant is an agreement between God and man that defines our relationship with God. And so the idea of a divine covenant between God and man is something very special. And there will certainly be special distinctives that are involved in this kind of covenant. And that's the second thing we must understand as we approach the subject of the covenant of works tonight. What are these distinctives that surround entry into covenant with God? Well, let me give you several of them very quickly. First of all, God will be in every way unique in his covenant dealings with man. He is always infinitely superior than any party with whom he enters into covenant. God's covenants are always unilateral. God is the ultimate sovereign who enters into covenant graciously, condescendingly with his creature. Acts 17 says, He needeth no other person or thing. Secondly, 
Men do not have liberty to take or to leave God's covenant. See, if it was a human covenant, one party or the other might have liberty to accept it or to reject it. But it's not so with God. Psalm 11 says, God has commanded his covenant forever. Then too, when God makes a covenant, there is no discussion as to the nature of its conditions. There is no negotiation. We heard last week at our classes a sermon on the text of 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, where David said, Thou hast established with my house, with me and my house, a covenant well-ordered in all things and sure. Well-ordered by God. God is the author. God sets all the terms. Now, in a divine covenant, no benefits accrue to God. God does not make a covenant for his own benefit to supply some lack in himself. God is utterly self-sufficient. It pleases God to enter into covenant. And he will get glory for it. But God's covenant brings no benefits to him in such a way that God will acquire something that he himself is missing or lacking. And finally, we need to say that when God makes a covenant, there is establishment of an intimate bond. An intimate bond of union and communion with him. It's much like the intimacy of marriage. It's not coincidental that God first enters into covenant with Adam, and then right behind it, as we hope to hear next time, he establishes the covenant of marriage. In marriage, a covenant has a legal aspect, doesn't it? You've signed a paper, or you've declared your vow, that you will be faithful to your spouse. But it also has a personal aspect, the daily life, the daily living out of that vow in marriage. Well, so it is when God enters into covenant with people. God establishes a new relationship in the covenant of grace when he regenerates people. But also, even with Adam before the fall, God superadded his covenant of works to creation. The covenant is not part and parcel of creation. This is something God gave in addition to creation. In order to enter into intimate friendship. You see, in covenant dealings with men, God desires to show his heart of friendship. That God desires to communicate with those with whom he enters into covenant. So he entered into covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with David, and with their seed. Reverend Kirsten put it this way in his dogmatics. By means of a covenant, God communicates with man in love and friendship. And also thereby the promised blessings of the covenant are secured, since by fulfilling the demands of the covenant, the blessings of the covenant are righteously awarded to man. So this should all convince us that God is first and last a covenant God. That's his very nature. He thinks covenantally. He has a covenantal heart. He is a covenantal God. And that's the third thing we want to look, look at by way of preface. What is really involved when we say that God is a 
covenantal God or a covenant-keeping God. Well, there are a few important things we need to understand here. Perhaps these are the most important. The very first thing we need to say here is that there is a covenant bond within all three persons of the Trinity toward one another. When we say that God is a covenant God, we mean, first of all, that the very nature of God in His own inter-Trinitarian relationship, relationship of the Father to the Son and the Spirit, of the Son to the Father and the Spirit, of the Spirit to the Father and the Son, is a covenantal relationship. In that covenant, God's own internal covenant relationship, there is, of course, equal parties. All three persons are equally God. And this covenantal relationship of God with himself involves personal knowledge. Matthew 11, Christ spoke of the Father and the Son knowing each other in a special way. It involves personal affection. Christ speaks in John 3 of the Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father. And of the love of the Spirit in Romans 15. And it involves personal communication. Psalm 110, for example. The Lord said unto my Lord. It also involves a personal delighting in one another. Proverbs 8, verse 30. Wisdom speaks of delighting in God. And God delighting in wisdom. In John 1, we read of the Son being in the bosom of the Father. Literally, face to face with God. So God has this wonderful relationship within himself. And that is the foundation from out of which God is prepared to enter into a condescending relationship from his side with his creature outside of himself. Within himself, you see, God shows the world God shows us through his word that he is able to enjoy and appreciate and experience relationships. And so when God reveals himself to man, it is only being consistent with his own character. As a God who delights in friendship and communion and covenant and relationship. Now that's why... God refers himself to himself so often by his most special name, the name Yahweh or Jehovah. In our King James Version, Lord with an O-R-D being uh, capital letters in a slightly reduced uh, size. That word Lord or Jehovah is used 6,823 times in the Old Testament. And on every occasion, you see, God is declaring His covenant name. That He is a God who desires to reveal Himself. That He is prepared to make Himself known. That He intends to show Himself friendly. Through Moses, He says, this is my name. And you can tell it to the people. I am that I am. I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. I am the faithful Covenant-keeping God.
Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org rst4. Then two, we need to notice here that when we say God is a covenant God, that there is something in the heart of God that is filled with mercy, filled with loving kindness. The Hebrew word for that is a special word called kesed, K-E-S-E-D. Sometimes it's translated as mercy, sometimes as loving kindness. Psalm 36 verse 10, for example, says, Oh, continue thy loving kindness, thy kisad, unto them that know thee. Now, this, the root meaning of this word kisad, mercy or loving kindness, is steadfastness, a willing and an eager steadfastness. And that word became used in a covenant context among men. But God uses it in a covenant context between himself and men. And it has the idea of loyalty and commitment, keeping faith, being steadfast, keeping faith to someone. It's used of a transaction that will help establish relationships, a treaty, if you will, of friendship and of commitment one to another. So the psalmist often speaks of God's kisad, God's mercy. Sometimes he puts it even in the plural of the mercies of God, of the covenant mercies of God. In Psalm 89, he speaks of it this way. He says, the covenant mercies of the Lord. God is a God of plural kisad. He's a God of abundant mercy. He's a God of abundant loving kindness. Matthew, or Micah rather, Micah 7 verse 20 says that God has sworn himself to Kisad. He has sworn himself to mercy. He's a covenant keeping God. And that swearing to mercy results in covenant. Micah says, thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. So Kisad. God's mercy, God's heart of loving kindness. That is the power that guarantees a covenant. And that makes the covenant strong and durable. He said, belongs to God. To thee, says the psalmist, belongeth mercy, O Lord. And so, he said, guarantees that God will be faithful. It encapsulates his mercy in a covenant promise. It teaches us that God's covenant keeping is always sure from his side. David speaks of it as the sure, he said, the sure mercies of David. God cannot break covenant. He is Jehovah. He is, he said, he is faithful. And finally, we need to notice here, when we say that God is a covenant God, that God is an intelligent being who has 
his own unique will. Paul says, doesn't he, who has resisted his will? Now, since God has a will, God wills to act. God acts internally within himself. Those are his eternal decrees and his eternal purposes. But he also wills to act externally, outside of himself. In creation, in providence, and in redemption. Now, among those internal acts, we have that great act of election. Election is the initial act of God by which he moves toward a covenant relationship with men. Election means that he determines to bestow love upon sinners with a goal of becoming personally and intimately united with them. And that's why he could say to Israel, you only have I known of all the nations of the earth. That's why he could say to his people in Jeremiah 31, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with cords of loving kindness have I drawn thee. So covenant is the way by which God carries out what he has bound himself to do. And thus we may conclude that even election, yes, especially election, declares God to be a covenant-keeping God. A God with a will. A God with a will of good pleasure. You see, all these things about God lie behind this statement that God is a covenant God. There are many more things, of course, we don't have time to go into. If you think just of the names of God, you can meditate on that on your own. The covenant names like king and shepherd and husband... Or the attributes of God. So many of them reveal his covenant nature. But this we can say, you see, in all these ways, God is a covenant God who aims at his eternal glory through having sinners experience him in a covenantal way. And God reveals that already before the fall. He reveals his natural heart. His kisset, his proneness to have mercy and goodness and kindness and loving kindness by coming to Adam. And in addition to his perfect creation, God comes to Adam and enters into covenant with him. And that brings us to our text tonight. The essential parts of the covenant of works. Now you may ask, But I don't even see the word. Where is the word covenant in in our text tonight? How can we speak about a covenant when it's not even there? And that's exactly what a lot of theologians do. And so a lot of theologians today conclude that there is no such thing as a covenant of works. But the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, and we believe in the Trinity, don't we? The word sacrament isn't in the Bible, but we believe in the word, we believe in sacraments. In 2 Samuel 7, the word covenant is not used of the covenant that God made with David. But we read in Psalm 89 and 2 Samuel 23 that God had made a covenant with David. God doesn't have to use the actual word as long as the parts of the covenant are there. Then we know that God has entered into covenant. Now you can find that also in our Bible in Hosea 6 verse 7. In Hosea 6 verse 7... 
we read, but they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. And if you look at the marginal notes, you will notice that the King James Version says, they, like Adam, have translated the covenant, transgressed the covenant. You see, if we adopt the marginal reading of the King James Version, then we can say that just as Adam was settled in paradise, so Israel was settled in Palestine. And as Adam was unworthy and sent out of Edom, so Israel proved unworthy of her dwelling place. So here you have a reference in Scripture itself, declaring that what God establishes here in our text really is covenant. But even more importantly, as I aim to show you now, the essential parts of a covenant are all here. Our text tells us, first of all, that God includes a clear stipulation. Don't eat of the forbidden tree. Now that's an important part of covenant making. The Lord commanded the man, saying, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. Now here God is not merely emphasizing his law. But by implication, he's also instituting the concept of promise. Because God put in the garden not only the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but he also put in the garden the tree of life. And you can read in Genesis 3, verse 22. That God says, after man fell, behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden. So here you have the threatening of death upon disobedience and the implication of life upon obedience. God is coming, entering into a covenant He's initiating the covenant. He's not asking Adam. Remember, he's the great sovereign. He's entering unilaterally into covenant with Adam and saying, here is the covenant that I am privileging you with. So Adam, being created good and upright, naturally responds to that and receives that covenant and enters willingly into covenant with God. And God is saying in this covenant, I will reward obedience and I will punish disobedience. Now, this covenant in Genesis 2 has a bearing upon all those included in those whom Adam represents. That is true of every Old Testament covenant, by the way. Noah's and Abraham's families were also affected by the covenants that God entered into with them. And so Adam's offense brings consequences for all mankind. If you turn with me a moment, this is very important to understand the coming of works, to Romans 5. Romans 5. There we see that God sets together the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The first Adam, Adam in paradise, and the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there God says in Romans 5, verse 12, As by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So when God spoke in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, he wasn't dealing just with Adam as Adam. But he was dealing with Adam 
as the head of Eve. Eve wasn't even created yet here. But also he was dealing with Adam as the head of all mankind, all his posterity. So Romans 5 says that should follow him. So Adam is here representing you and me also in an even more organic way than President Bush represents us as citizens of our nation. There's a real intimate connection between all mankind. We are all represented in paradise in our covenant head, Adam. Now you also find in Genesis 2, as you do with other covenants, that there are certain signs or tokens attached. In this case, the signs are two trees. Two trees in the midst of the garden. Trees that are instituted as signs. One tree confirming Adam's highest good if he were to persevere. We know that also from Revelation 2, verse 7, and Revelation 22, verse 2, where God speaks about the tree of life. Those who overcome, I will, I will cause to eat of the tree of life, and they shall live forever. And he speaks of the tree of life, whose leaves in the new paradise, the heaven of heavens, shall be given for the healing of the nations. So the tree of life was a confirmation of God's promise of life. Now you may ask, well, all this is well and good, but why did God call this a covenant, why do theologians rather call this a covenant of works? Well, there are other names that theologians give to it. Some call it a covenant of creation. Some call it the covenant of nature. Some call it the covenant of life. But most call it the covenant of works because the covenant had a condition. Adam had to perform works of obedience. Everything in this covenant, in its continuation, depended on Adam's works. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org.